0: To the first ever episode 26 of the best seats podcast the only podcast bringing you all the interviews with some of the most talented folks from the southern california hospitality industry and beyond each and every episode i'm your host Ralph mccarthy founder of the best seats thank you as always to Ally Coyle for providing music for the show you can find more of her work at alicoilmusic.com as a reminder if you enjoy the show Please be sure to leave some ratings, reviews, and anything else wherever you're listening to it. It helps other folks find the show. And if you like this content, head to thebestseats.com for more of it. Now, when I say Southern California and beyond, today is very much a beyond episode. This show may record down in Orange County, California, but this is not an Orange County episode. This is one that I'm so excited about. I love each and every one of the 25 guests that have graced this show, but as somebody who is a cocktail fanatic, a whiskey enthusiast, an all-around big fan of the Midwest and the great city that is Chicago, Illinois, I am so excited to welcome Paul Plekko to the show. Founder, master distiller, now granted is not in Chicago, a few spirits just north of Evanston, Illinois. Paul is a guy who I've been a fan of for years. Uh, First and foremost, I got to give a big thank you to the person that made this interview happen, Jill Cook. You can find her on the very first episode ever of the Best Seats Podcast way back in the heyday when it was a little rougher and the world was a different place, although still wearing masks. She made this happen, so Jill, thank you. Uh, Paul, the guy's awesome. His whiskeys are awesome, his gin is awesome. Now, full disclosure, uh, Paul was incredibly gracious enough to send me uh, a couple of bottles of his whiskeys so you can take that with a grain of salt and what I have to say about the company with a grain of salt, if you wish, but I love them. Um, I've had them on my back bar before, I haven't in a while, so this little gift package was extremely welcome, especially during these times, but this is an awesome episode. Uh, My main passion, if you know me at all, is definitely with spirits. It's something that just started pulling at my heartstrings. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, it's one of the reasons that I got into whatever this is now. I love it. I adore it. I'm fascinated by it. Um, I think the products are just delicious. I think the process of creating them is incredibly romantic as much as it is scientific. I was never a kid that was ever going to be able to take chemistry in high school, nor did I want to. Um, and I kind of regret that now because spirit making is equal parts. You know, romance and passion mixed with precision and trial and error and executing something over and over until you get this fantastic product. So I'm really, really passionate about this one. This one is very near and dear to my heart. Um, definitely one of those more beyond episodes as we're heading out to Illinois, but I cannot thank Paul enough for his time I hope that you really enjoyed this episode and enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's get right to it with the founder of Few Spirits, Paul Letko. Hello. Paul, how are you? Doing good. Thank you so much for taking the time.
1: No problem. Is, uh, how's my sound
0: over here? Is it too loud or are we good? No, you're pretty good. Yeah, we should be good to go. Cool. I cool, uh, cool, cool. I am so, so humbled and uh, happy that you took the time to peel out to uh, this morning to kind of jump on the show. i am I'm been such a fan of your spirits for a long time and kind of a, a fan of yours for afar that kind of to be able to sit down and talk is really, really special, especially as somebody who... My main passion in this whole industry is spirits. So I'm, aside from the fact that I know this is going to be a super great episode for everybody listening, this is also just a really special one for me personally.
1: Um, yeah, i excited to be here. It's going to be fun.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I'm very familiar with your spirits. I'm familiar with your backstory a little bit. But for some of the folks who may be listening that are not, would you mind just taking a second to introduce yourself and give a little bit of uh, backstory about few?
1: Sure. So my name is Paul Holecko. I'm a founder and distiller and you know, all sorts of all sorts of other things over here at few spirits. Uh, and what few spirits is, is, you know, we're a small grain to glass distillery, uh, just immediately outside Chicago in Evanston, Illinois. Uh, so grain to glass that means that we actually make all of our own spirits ourselves. Uh, if you're out there listening, uh, you know, one of the downsides of the spirits business is that there's a lot of smoke and mirrors. Uh, and what we at few spirits do is get rid of all the smoke and mirrors and we just, we just make our stuff and we do what we do and we talk about what we do, we do what we um, which is you know, sadly a very much of a rarity in our business.
0: How did um, you, so I think that, no, sorry, keep go going, ahead. please.
1: Oh, and so, you know, we always think that that's really, you know, that's one of the things that makes us stand out is the fact that we actually make our own spirits. Uh, and two, the other thing that kind of stands out is a little bit of geography, uh, because where we are at Evanston, Illinois, uh, yes, it's just a near the outside Chicago, about a mile from the city limits. Uh, but it's more interesting historically and geographically because Evanston was the birthplace of the entire Prohibition movement, and I'm the guy that killed Prohibition dead where it was born.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, I wanted to jump into that right away. What drove you, not only to start Few, but to do it basically in the backyard where if you're going to talk about temperance movement, you're going to talk about Prohibition, you can't not. Talk about Chicago. How did you get sure. into what? What drove you basically to make spirits?
1: So it drove me to make spirits. With a little bit of family history with alcohol. And prior to World War II, my grandfather's family owned what is now a major brewery in the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia at the time, of course. Uh, but uh, you know, those of you listening probably know in 1939 the Nazis invaded. And they confiscated the brewery and murdered my grandpa's entire family in the camp. And while my grandpa survived, obviously, otherwise I wouldn't be here, uh, You know, he spent the rest of his life trying to get the brewery back, but never did. And then when he died, it kind of struck me that this legacy and family history is gone forever uh, unless I do something about it. So I did. And you know, so that kind of combined with a lifelong love and passion for beverage, alcohol, uh, certainly a big fan of the still spirits as well, but also didn't want to be in the shadow of a major brewery. I wanted to do something that was, uh, you know, ours and different and unique and not you know, just, I wanted to do something that's a little bit more different than something that could really be ours rather than trying to trade on the infamy of another brand or do something else. Um, It's really much more able to, or I think it's much more able to be creative and spread out positive messages uh, than just copy somebody else.
0: Especially with Milwaukee not too, too far away and obviously just kind of being the storied drinking town that Chicago really is with so many legendary drinking establishments and obviously the whole history of it what an, like what drove you to go down kind of the whiskey gin path? Was it just the respect for those old kind of like prohibition spirits or just to kind of differentiate from the area?
1: You know, all of the above. And I think, you know, certainly, you know, I live here in Chicago, have since the early 90s. I love Chicago. Um, but, uh, you know, why, so I mean, why distilled spirits? You know, again, being different uh, and trying to do something positive. Uh, why Chicago? So I, you know, I live here. Uh, why Evanston? Um, you know, I actually, tell you, hey, I actually live in Evanston, not Chicago. So, you know, I had the idea and submitted to open up a distillery. That the kind of next question is where. And although I originally kind of set up about a six-hour driving window of places where I wanted to put it, uh, at the end of the day, it just made more sense to put it in my own backyard. And so the distillery, you know, actually, literally, where I'm sitting right now, is about halfway between my old house and where my kids went to elementary school. So I could walk the kids to school in the morning, or I can come to work, go home, grab the kids, go you know, walk them to school, walk to school, come back, you know, finish up the day. Uh, I got to go over and be the mystery reader in their elementary school classrooms a couple times, um, and I think you know those are the things that are really important in life. It's yeah. Yes, you know, the distilled spirits and business is important, but the things that really matter are family. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, a million you know, So, you know, the ability to kind of have this set up in a way that I can spend that sort of quality time with my kids is just absolutely priceless. And you know, walk into school and giggling and telling jokes and being silly and uh, that's that's just far more important than
0: anything else. Uh, there's so many people with everything going on with COVID 19 that are having to learn how to work from home. And it sounds like you were really, really ahead of the curve on that one. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh,
1: unintentionally.
0: <laughs> See, trend setting, not just with the whiskeys and gins.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, be-
0: before we jump into the distillation process, because I really want to break that down, you mentioned the grain to glass and kind of what goes into that, um, especially when it, we talk about the whiskey doing that outside of kind of those non traditional hotbeds. I want to ask one very, and I know you're outside of Chicago, but I do want to ask one more Chicago related question when it comes to distilled spirits. Why no Malort? <laughs> and again, um, for those of that are not listening, Malort is basically Jaeger on rocket fuel. So it's, it's the easiest way to put it.
1: <laughs> uh, well we, the, the answer is that we actually did do a Malort for a minute. Um, so it's a little more complex than you might have thought, but you know, we are Chicago. Mm. Uh, never really wanted to be in the Malort business. Uh, um, it's a pretty
0: niche market.
1: It's a pretty niche market. <laughs> it is just, you know, it's just, it is what it is. Like I'm not, not talking shit about it. Just you know, That wasn't really where I wanted to be spending my time. Yeah. But at the same time, we are Chicago. And so we did come out with one. And by price, it was really good. Um, but then the people over at the uh, larger, uh, Malort Brands sent us a uh, go-fuck-yourself letter. Uh, (laughs) And that made made me very sad and very angry because they can't play nice in the sandbox. Of course. And so, you know, originally we had set it up where we were going to sell about 150 bottles of it. Again, we just did it for fun and giggles just at a good time. Uh, But then once they kind of got lawyers involved, uh, my attitude changed a little bit. And so instead of just doing 150 bottles, we launched it. in I think 15 different markets, uh, (laughs) took it around the world. Um, and then eventually once, once I'd had my fun, uh, we stopped making it. I love it. Uh, It was fun. It was a great product. You know, there's still bottles out there, like here and there. Uh, but most bartenders that knew about it, bought up the supply and are hoarding it. So like, if you know the right bartenders, they might have it. Got Uh, it. Okay but if they do, they're probably hoarding it behind and you have to ask for it or uh, they're only going to share it if they know. All right. Um, I love that. So the long answer is we did do it. We just don't do it anymore.
0: (laughs) I like it. All right, so grain to glass, the distillation process. Distilling is something that I think avid fans of spirits, maybe depending on kind of where they're at, have a different level of comprehension of at least kind of the general process of it. Those who are more kind of casual listeners and casual drinkers, I think it's very kind of a mysterious process, which gives some of that romantic allure to spirits in general. But obviously, mm-hmm. few is very special in the fact that you're basically doing every part of the process. Can you walk kind of through what it's like to conceptualize a bottle of whiskey and and what is that process of grain to glass for you?
1: Sure. So for us, uh, you know, we bring in grain uh, into the story. Obviously, grain being whatever either you're going to turn the whiskey, whatever you're going to make the whiskey out of, that's the grain you use. Uh, and so actually, well, maybe I'll step, step back a second. Whiskey is just, uh, aside from other rules, uh, whiskey is just a distilled spirit that is distilled from grain uh, as compared to, say, for example, uh, some sort of sugar cane, which would then be rum, or some sort of agave, which would then be tequila or mezcal, or you know, some sort of fruit, in which case would be brandy. Uh, Whiskey is just a distilled spirit, distilled from grain. And so since we're a whiskey distillery, we bring all sorts of grain in here. Uh, We do specialize in bourbons and rye. So probably 99% of the grain we use is either corn, uh, rye, or malted barley. Uh, The grain comes in. uh, And because uh, both corn and rye need to be cooked, Uh, so we first cook the corn and rye, uh, and when you cook those grains, it turns, you know, it converts at least part of those grains into starches, uh, it breaks down the starches. Uh, and then you add in malted barley and that malted barley converts those starches into sugars. Uh, and then once you have the sugars, you add in yeast and the yeast then converts those sugars into alcohol. And so now you end up with kind of a uh, alcohol, water, and grain mixture, and you need to separate the alcohol from that. And so you do that by basically boiling it and collecting the vapors. So alcohol boils at a lower temperature than water, so when you heat it up, uh, the alcohol vaporizes first, and you just collect those vapors, cool the vapors down, and now you've got alcohol. Uh, that has separated from the water and drink. And, you know, in a nutshell, that's really the basic process. Obviously, there's more to it, and that's, this is where the art comes in in making whiskey. Uh, but the science of making whiskey is not particularly challenging. Um, the art is where it starts getting interesting.
0: I don't know if, if there's, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know if there's a, a bigger, at least here in the States, a spirit with kind of more experts that are not experts about the product in the least than whiskey. Um,
1: (laughs) Yeah, everybody thinks they know a lot more about it.
0: They really do. I mean, beginning with the fact that it does not have to be, you know, out of Kentucky or kind of any of those other aspects of it. Um, There are definitely some rules associated with it, but like you said, it's basically just that process of getting the right grains and kind of breaking it down. During your process of distillation, what's it like for you to kind of manipulate that? Like, where, how do you find that right flavor when you know you're like, "Oh, this thing is perfect"? By the time, I'm assuming it's some by the process of when it's sitting in the barrels, kind of tasting and letting it sit and kind of things like that. But how do you know when it's time to bottle and when you really have something on your hands? Because the whiskeys are unbelievable. I, I they're hey, some of my think, favorites. I've been drinking them for a while.
2: For
1: us, it's all about the flavor in the glass. You know, we don't age date anything. I don't believe in it but it's all about the flavor. And so what we do, or what we what we do and what we did is, we kind of come up with an idea of what we want something to taste like, and then we reverse engineer that. So if you want something sweet, or if you want something spicy, or you want it fruity, or you want soft, you want it strong, you want it velvety, you want it round, you know, what sort of flavors do you want your whiskey to have And then we use, and then we develop it backwards from there, as far as what grains are we going to use? What kind of yeast are we going to use? What sort of fermentation are we going to have? What sort of barrel aging, if any, are we going to have? What kind of, what kind of char do we want? Where are we going to get the barrels from? Um, Because once you have the, once you have the idea of what you want the art to look like, then you can take all the tools that we have available to us to take the raw material and, craft it into that liquid art that we put in the bottle. So, you know, just take, take for example, a few spirits, straight bourbon whiskey. And so it's a mash bill of 70% corn, 20% rye, ten percent malt. And so we picked that because we wanted it to be bourbon, so majority corn. We wanted it to be spicy, so we had a high rye mash fill. Uh, and then from there, we continued to shape that even further by picking our particular yeast and so for the bourbon, we use a beer yeast that has a lot of cinnamon, clove, and coriander flavors. And so that those flavors all show up in the distillate. And we try to distinguish it even further by ramping up the spice by using different kinds of barrels that other people use. And we distill it to a low temperature, to, preserve, to a low proof, in order to preserve a lot of those congeners and esters that we create during the fermentation with a particular yeast we use. And so there's the science of, you know, make alcohol and boil it is easy, but there's so many different tools we have to express that science in an artistic fashion. But that's where it starts getting very, that's where the fun and that's where the interesting stuff comes in is how do you get to this image of what we want uh, with the tools that we have? Um, or like so we're going through right now and we're collaborating with uh, you know a pretty big band on a whiskey project and you know they kind of came in with they came to us with the concept of that they wanted it to be named um, and so that was the concept that we then had to reverse engineer was wasn't so much a flavor but a name and what does that name mean and how do you express that name in a whiskey And we're not all the way there yet, but uh, I think we're pretty close. Um, But, you know, again, that art, you know, you can express that art in a whole bunch of different ways.
0: When you were first getting started and you made your very first whiskey, what was that like for you and kind of what did that taste like? Did it come out tasty or was it one of those things you're like, oh, we still got a little ways to go?
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, we definitely did some experimentation. And try to figure it out. So I think even when we started up, most of the stuff we were making, I wouldn't say few, uh, <laughs> but I would say it wasn't necessarily what we were looking for. Again, like you know, we wanted this, and not everything we made really hit that. Uh, you know, there is very much a learning process and learning how to use tools uh, and how to you know how do you shape and how do you craft and. What do you do, you know, what happens when you tweak this parameter and that parameter? And, you know, so I think there's a lot of stuff that we worked on to get to where we are today. And I think we're at this point a pretty finely tuned machine and we can, you know, I think we've got a pretty good idea how to use the tools we have. But even then when we're experimenting, we're still trying to figure out, okay, did that really get to where we wanted to go or how could we get closer to our destination? I think it's a lot quicker for us to get there today because we're not taking nearly as many wild goose chasing. Yeah, uh, But it's not always a straight line either.
0: When it comes to the aging process, um, I recently did an episode with a brand representative uh, from a whiskey down in Texas. And they were talking about how the temperature really was affecting the aging process any different. <laughs> because you guys are obviously north. Are you also getting those things where the different kind of weather patterns affect your aging process and kind of change like the the quote-unquote kind of terroir of the whiskeys? And if so, what was that kind of learning process like for you?
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, certainly the weather patterns here are dramatically different than Texas uh, or even Kentucky Mm -hmm. or any other place. So here in Chicagoland, we get super hot, super muggy summers. Uh, and then we get, you know, pretty dry, pretty cold winters. And so that temperature variation is super important for us. And so uh, again, I'm not gonna say it's better I'm not gonna say it's better or worse than somewhere else, but I will say that it's different and that those temperature swings are vital for the way that we make our whiskey, uh, because you know, with the swings in temperature, it forces the whiskey into and out of the wood barrel and that affects the flavor. Mm-hmm. So certainly heat is a huge deal um, and does a great deal of maturation just being with heat, but we also think that you get a lot of the important maturation when it's you know, cold as well. And no, it's not moving as quickly, but I think it gives the whiskey a little bit of a chance to rest a little bit. And I do think that it really makes a difference that we've got some cold winters where the whiskey can kind of relax and chill out for a little bit before it starts getting into summer where it starts maturing pretty rapidly. Uh, And then the winter, it just kind of chills out.
0: Does being so close to the lake have any effect on the aging process at all?
1: Yeah, I do think it does affect us a little bit. you know, here in Chicago, there's the famous saying of cooler by the lake, and you know we're right by the lake. I mean, where I'm sitting is about a half mile from the lake, and none of our none of our barrels are stored more than probably two miles from the lake, maybe two and a half. I haven't done the distance, but um, you know it does matter. The you know in the summer you've got a giant heat sink that still that remains cold from the winter uh, all summer long, maybe until August. Uh, then I start heating up, and then. It keeps things relatively warm in the winter because uh, you've got this huge you know, giant body of water that yep. absorbs all the heat all summer long. Um, so it, I do think it makes a difference in our overall terroir for sure.
0: What prompted you to jump into gin?
1: The gin is a just a magnificent spirit, mm-hmm. um, right. and then B as a as a distiller, the freedom. You create with Jig is so much broader and wider than it is with whiskey. That how can you not? Uh, you know, I can take a Jig concept from an idea to a bottle on the shelf in well less than six months.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas with whiskey, uh, I, I probably can't even take a uh, I, I can't even take a concept to a first carry onto something probably double or triple that Yeah. Um, so you, know, you could do stuff with gin that you simply can't do with whiskey because of that aging cycle and so and on top of that the rules are wide open uh, so you could do some really weird and wild and wacky stuff with gin that you maybe can't necessarily do as well with all sorts of other stuff and that's not to say there's no room for experimentation and innovation in whiskey. because you know, We've proven that wrong, mm-hmm. but it, it's it's just easier and quicker to innovate in gin than it is in whiskey.
0: Yeah, the so regulations. Yeah, it. those regulations are definitely a lot a lot looser. It's probably not right.
1: Understandable. So, in order to call it gin, right? In order to call it gin, all it has to have is the quote predominant flavor of juniper, but no one can no one can knows what the word predominant means so it's just this wide open area where as long as there's some juniper in there you can at least argue that it's predominant so it's pretty wide open you can have citrusy gins you can have spicy gins you can have gins that you know that are vanilla like our few spirits american gin you can have gins that use teas like few spirits breakfast gin. um you can innovate and create faster with gin than, than with
0: whiskey. Gin, I think, got a bad rap for a number of years. I think uh, mainly because of the vodka martini craze, I think, back in the day. And I think that gin is just now really kind of refining itself the best like past decade or so. And while whiskey drinkers are very ardent and generally stubborn, and I, I'm one of them, so I can't really speak disparagingly yeah. about everybody, have you found which of the spirits is harder to educate new consumers on, the whiskey or the gin?
1: Oh, by far, gin. Yeah. Um, especially, although it's, it's also variable too, based on where you are. So, like here in the United States, the conversation around gin is certainly changing a lot over the years. But when we started, it was always like, oh, gin? You know, and I say, oh, I don't like gin. Like, well, you know, what do you mean you don't like gin? Oh, you know, I was 17, I was in my friend's basement, and then, you know, the story just continues on from there. Um, and over the last 10 years, I think a lot of that story has changed, and people have recognized that maybe when you were 17 in your friend's basement and you drank too much gin out of a plastic handle, maybe it was your fault not the fault of gin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people are starting to have a much more open mind and we're finding them coming into the gin space and going, I really like this and how versatile this spirit is, because I can, you can do a really boozy cocktail like a martini and you can do a gin and juice, you can do a gin and tonic and you can go refreshing, you can go bitter and you can go fruity, you can go carbonated. You could go a whole bunch of different ways with gin. Um, and it's such a versatile spirit. And now I, I know the bar industry a couple of years ago, and we trying to really push the warm gin shot. And that trend really never took off beyond the bartender world. But yeah. uh, uh, people and the, the market and people's ability and desire to acquaint themselves with gin has never been higher.
0: Yeah, I would completely agree with that. The uh, uh,
1: yeah, maybe, yeah, go
0: ahead. Oh, no, no, no. Please keep going.
1: Yeah. So if you go over to the UK, the consumers there are all about gin. And they'll be drinking gin forever. And they love gin, and they want to talk more about the botanical blend. They want, to, they want to talk a lot more about that. You don't get, oh, I don't like gin. Over the UK, you get, oh, I don't like American whiskey. I don't like Jack Daniels.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Or... You know, so it's just—it's very much a cultural thing where Americans get turned off by gin, and uh, the British get turned off by American whiskey. And then they try it, like, oh wait, I really, I, I really like that. That doesn't taste like Jim Beam at all. Like, no, oh, of course, <laughs> it's different. Um, not that Jim Beam is not great whiskey, because you know, in fact, Jim Beam is great whiskey. But uh, people get these biases, uh, and it can be very challenging to overcome some of these biases. Nobody wants to be wrong.
0: Yeah. When uh, when everything kind of shut down, I think, what is it, like just before St. Patty's Day with the virus and everything else, it was interesting to watch the way that the different markets were being hit. Because again, restaurants shut down and bars shut down, at least, again, I'm recording out here in California, our bars are still shut down. And I know it varies, obviously, state by state and things like that. Um, I've spoken with a couple of liquor representatives, but I haven't had the chance to speak yet with somebody who actually heads up a distillery. Obviously, retail sales are up. Depending on what part of the country you're in and I'm with internationally too i'd be very curious to hear obviously your kind of on site sales are down, but what's it been like navigating these kind of waters from the market standpoint from your position?
1: Well it's very interesting so I think that the purchasing decision or the factors affecting the purchasing decision have changed and continue to change pretty rapidly so like at first, I think there was very much a big run on uh, relatively low priced uh, alcohol because nobody knew how long it's going to last. And if you're going out to stock up because you don't know if you're going to go to get alcohol again for any time soon, uh, you know, that is a factor in your mind that's going to drive you to purchase stuff that you might not otherwise. You're going to go for bulk. You're going to go, you know, it's so like in March, your box of wine was up like 1200% year over year. While whiskey's over eighty dollars a bottle, were down like ninety percent year over year
2: mm-hmm. because everybody just went in.
1: You know, I I just need bulk. I don't care what I'm drinking; it's definitely a lot of it. Yeah. Um, so you know, you saw liquor stores just—they couldn't keep low price stuff on the shelves. Uh, which you know, sounds like it's good for liquor stores, but uh, it's actually not that great. Cause they actually lost profitability because they weren't selling as much of the high-end stuff which is where they actually make most of their money yeah uh, but you know neither here nor there uh, but over the last several months I think the purchasing patterns have gotten a lot more normalized and people are back to buying what they want to buy so you know, at first you know, have a low end of the market took off to the detriment of the high end of the market but now I think these sales patterns have yeah, certainly they're not the same as they were before, but they're much more normal, at least at retail. You know, I mean the arm permit is a whole different ball of wax, but either doing okay or zero. Mm-hmm. Um, but at retail we've seen very much of a little bit almost like a whiplash effect of it, just teetering from massively over favoring, you know, bulk over price to a much more normalized purchasing decision and people are now buying what, you know, they're not buying what they want to buy. Uh, and in fact, it's, there's, to whatever extent, there are a lot of people that are even paying a little bit more attention to what they buy. And there's an awful lot of people that are very much realizing that they need to purchase the things that they care about. Otherwise, they aren't going to last. Yeah. So the people that care about having you know, high end or craft spirits on the shelf, we're seeing an awful lot of people going, you know what, maybe, uh, maybe if I want this to continue, I need to keep on buying it now because if I don't buy this bottle of you know, product X, that company might not be around anymore. And maybe instead of going to eat at a chain restaurant, I'm going to go to the taqueria down the street and spend my money with the taqueria. And instead of going to shop at you know, a big box store X, maybe I'm going to go shop at a boutique retailer because I value what the boutique retailer brings to my community and to me. So maybe it's time for me to really put my money where my mouth is and prove it. And so I think we are seeing a pretty decent amount of purchasing decisions move from, I need lots of alcohol at the lowest price available to... I need to make sure that I'm supporting the things that are important to me, um, you know, like restaurants or boutique clothing or craft beer or craft spirits or you know, you name it, whatever is important to you. you know, I think these times are really emphasizing to people that they need to support what they what they think is important.
0: Where do you think the craft industry of spirits kind of sits as a whole because again i've spoken with a couple of friends who are beverage directors and again the biggest one that we look at kind of for reference down here is the agave industry looking at kind of how hard mexico has been hit and like the mezcals and things like that obviously it depends on what type of spirits you're looking at whether you're looking at you know someone like tattersall out in minnesota kind of some of those smaller brands Crafts are getting hit a little bit harder because, like you said, people went out and kind of bought in bulk. I know Diageo's stock kind of shot up and then leveled off a little bit when this thing first happened. But where do you think the craft industry sits as a whole as this kind of all continues?
1: Yeah, I think the craft overall as a whole, I think the craft industry remains strong. I think that there are a lot of small distilleries that are going to be struggling for various reasons. Uh, but for the most part, a lot of that's just because a lot of them really rely on their bar sales and over the counter. Um, so I think that there's an awful lot of challenges there, but again, I think a lot of the purchasing decisions, people really are kind of sitting back and saying, I need to support what is important to me. Um, because otherwise it's not going to, it can't last. So, you know, restaurants, bars, uh, even retailers. I mean, we're seeing people start to shop at the small retailers and we're mm-hmm. seeing, you know, people avoiding the big box chains and going into the retailer that's in their neighborhood and going, I want you to be here. Thank you for all you do for our community. And if you know, say my bottle of wine costs me an extra $2, that's okay.
0: As somebody who runs and owns a craft distillery, um, I want to talk about that term specifically, craft distiller, because I, I think in some cases maybe we're starting to overuse it some. How would you perso- mm-hmm. how would you personally define it? And then at what point does it change? Because I think there's this big disparity. It's it's basically any brand under, you know, Constellation Diageo, somebody like that, and then everybody else is craft. Do you think that we need to find like a middle ground type of term for when some of those smaller distilleries start to get bigger and start to get more widely recognized?
1: I, I think it's a delicate thing because at the end of the day, the word craft is already largely meaningless. Yeah. And so, you know, the issue is that everybody wants to be craft because the consumer wants to buy craft products. So you end up with things that you know, one person may or may not think is craft. And so, you know, the word, the definition of craft is very much in the eye of the beholder because, you know, one person might think that craft is this, somebody else might think that craft is that. And everybody wants to be craft. And so it's very difficult to come up with a definition of what it means. Um, you know, so when I was the head of the ACSA, mm-hmm. that was a battle that we did, that we took on very quickly, was you know, how is it that we define craft? Because it's a very loaded word. And so I mean, the American Craft Spirit Association came up with a definition that I think is very solid and it's relatively not associated necessarily with size. Um, because realistically, if you look at what a lot of the large distilleries do, quite frankly, it's a hell of a lot more crap than what a lot of the small distilleries do. Mm-hmm. Um, at least to my mind. Uh, but the decision is really up to each individual person to decide what's crafted them. And so at the ACSA, what we really tried to do is take that definition away and just say, look, craft is in the eye of the beholder, but the beholder is entitled to truthful information so they can make their own decision as to what's craft and what's not. And so you'll get like some super small distilleries that are farm distilleries. They grow their own grain uh, right there on site, and they turn into spirits right there on site. And is that craft? Well, certainly to me, that's definitely craft. But we at few, we don't grow our own grain. So under that standard, Few would not be a craft distillery. But I don't think that's fair because I really do think that few is also a craft distillery. Yeah. So, you know, if the consumer wants to make sure that they are buying their spirit from somebody that grew the grain themselves, they're entitled to that information and they're entitled to that decision. Uh, whereas somebody else might think that it's craft. To have a spread, you know, to look at a spreadsheet that you get from MGP and order up, you know, X number of barrels because they're at a certain price. Uh, blend those barrels together, and all of a sudden, you've got a source MGP whiskey that some people might say is craft. Uh, I would disagree with that, but the consumers entitled to make up their own mind. Yeah. They should just have full information as to what it is, and. If that's craft to you, then God bless and buy that. But you should not be buying whiskey from somebody that just bought a bunch of barrels off a spreadsheet from MGP and pretending that they do what I do, which is you know make whiskey from scratch.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: The MGP debate is no, that's not fair at all. And what's so interesting is it's almost kind of been this process of realization, at least from what I've seen within my own network, of kind of that MGP process being you know, brought to light without uh, kind of being disparaging towards any other brands? Because I, I I don't want to do that. Would you mind shedding a little bit of light on MGP and that process a little bit?
1: Sure. So I mean, just to lead off, MGP makes some of the finest whiskey on the planet.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, I can't anybody argue Anybody
1: who knows, right, anybody who drinks their whiskey, uh, their quality, their flavor, they all unassailable. They make fantastic whiskey. Absolutely. But the, the issue tends to be that they sell, you know, basically what they do is they sell most of their whiskey to other brands. They don't, you know, until about what, a year and a half ago, they didn't have any of their own real brands on the market. So they just sold the people that bought whiskey from them and then, re- and then repackaged it and sold it as theirs, which is a perfectly, valued, perfectly great thing. But many of the people that did that started pretending that they were doing stuff that they weren't doing and that the whiskey is being made here, the whiskey is being made there, and they were really very much lying to people, and that that ain't right. You know, the whiskey in the glass is, what, is what's important, and when you get MGP whiskey, you're, good in fact, you're, you're, you're gonna get great whiskey, mm-hmm. but don't lie about it, because you, sh- you know, somebody who's separating themselves from their money and paying for something should get what they think they're buying. And so that's what's always driven me nuts is, you know, this viewpoint is that, you know, a driving enough that people is the viewpoint that MGP whiskey isn't good because it is. Uh, but then you also get this viewpoint that it's what they do is the exact same thing as what I do. And it's not, um, you know, we make our whiskey from scratch. They get a price sheet from a company and they buy whiskey. Uh, those are different things. You know, I buy grain, they buy barrels of whiskey. Um, and there's brands out there that pretend that they're jumping around the rick houses at MGP to find only the finest barrels. I assure you, they are not. Um, you, you get a price sheet that says, you know, a barrel is $2,500 or this barrel is $1,500 or what have you. And it just says it gives you the mash bill and the age. And you buy barrels. And again, that's great. It's going to be great whiskey. But don't pretend you're jumping around doing these artistic blends when you've got an Excel spreadsheet that showed you the cost and you bought it.
0: That's not fair. Well, it also lends itself to the argument of kind of the joke that I made earlier about how everybody's an expert. Because let's say you go over to a friend's house and they're like, hey, can I get a a whiskey? Oh, yeah, I've got this one. This is my favorite. You know, what do you drink? And what people don't realize is 80% of what's on everybody's kind of average home back bar when they're talking about their nice whiskey all came from the same place. And it's just that kind of romantic story on the bottle that people differentiate because there's so many other things going on, especially nowadays that people don't, I I think kind of care to dive into that history and story. So I'm glad you were kind of able to, yeah, it's, it's just tough. It's not what you want to see.
1: And I I just don't think it's ethical and it's not, it's perfectly ethical for the consumer. They're just buying what they think they want to buy Mm -hmm. and they're buying great whiskey. But I really think it's very unethical for people to, uh, Shade or be unclear about what it is they do, um, and so you know and that's what the ethics code of the APSA is all about. Mm-hmm. And, which I should know because I, I, I wrote the ethics code of the APSA. But that's what it is: it just tell the damn truth. Yeah. And if that's so hard to do, uh, it really shouldn't be. Uh, just be honest. Um, you know, that's what my mom taught me when I was a kid.
0: Yeah. I, I, I don't disagree at all. I'm I'm, I'm glad you're able to kind of shed a little bit of light on that because I brought it up to a couple of friends who are just kind of fans of the industry and it just like, what? What is that? We don't know what that is. So thank you for shedding some professional light on that. And definitely yeah. having written the ethics code uh, for the SEA, it was definitely one of those things where, no, I can't tell that that hit home at all. So <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm, I'm glad that wasn't a passionate topic. <laughs> Um, I want to switch a little bit. I almost said the word pivot, which if I hear that word again, I'm gonna to have to down a whole bottle of whiskey. It's the word of 2020. So many different brands were doing so much uh, during the past six months to find new ways to reach out to consumers, whether they're new or you know returning and just fans of the brands. Whether it was the online, you know, Zoom hangouts or Instagram Live, you know, I saw a lot of editors from liquor, you know, magazines all the way from Punch to Vibe, kind of hosting different brand representatives and, and heads of distilleries and things like that. You did an awesome little side project that was a little bit different. You were doing children's bedtime stories. Can you talk about how that <laughs> how that concept kind of came to be and, and just how that was the idea that you went with? Because I freaking loved it. I don't have kids, but there was even one time I caught myself watching them after one too many whiskeys. And I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> I love this. How did that whole idea come no. about?
1: No. I'm just trying to figure out something that would calm me down. You know, I was super freaked out <laughs> at the time and trying to think about stuff that I, that I've done that brought me, that has brought me emotional peace in the past and, you know, reading books to my kids. It's one of the greatest things I've done on the planet. I mean, that's like what a special thing is to sit there and read a book with your child on your lap. Then I mean, it's just, it's emotionally soaring, and at a time when life was extremely emotionally draining, where you know even you know, it's, it's still today, and it's, life is emotionally draining. But it really kind of brought me to some really happy places where you know, and you've got a child on your lap or reading them a book. The world is a pretty good place, mm-hmm. and we all could use a little bit more of the world being a pretty good place. Uh, you know, all the time, but especially the last few months, it's just been really tough. Yeah. And so I just kind of started, i kind go, of like, yeah, I want to read a book on Instagram. That'd be fun. And people seemed to like it. So I started reading more, and I started reading more. And people were liking it and it's still out there. So, you know, it's on my personal Instagram, at Paul M. Holetko, H O E T K O. And you can still see them, you know, obviously they're still up there. And it was fun. Uh-huh. Um, I've got a few more books I have to read still, uh, but for the most part, they're all books that I find really personally uh, deep because they're just my absolute favorites. They're some of my absolute favorites when I was reading to my kids. And so I've been trying to find a time to read them like, with my wife or read them with my kids, um, but you know, it just hasn't happened. Because, you know, now my kids are teenagers and they just roll your eyes and you're, oh, I'm not going to read that book with you, dad. It's embarrassing enough that you do this stuff, but I'm not going to, I can't condone
0: this. Well, it's a little harder to get them to sit on your lap too when they weigh a bit more. So that's yeah. fair. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> um, now that, uh, now again, I don't know if it's starting back up in Illinois, but obviously schools are kind of starting to start up. But when school was still going on, when this first started, did you or your wife have to step up and play teacher also? where were the kids kind of self-sufficient?
1: They're kind of self-sufficient. My kids are all relatively old now, so they can kind of. We kind of expect them to be able to supervise themselves and handle their own stuff at least to some extent. <laughs> um. So, but it was, but it was tough. I mean, the this e-learning stuff really isn't. Yeah. Um, you know, it's really difficult, and some kids are able to do it. Some kids are not. But realistically, I think the fraction of those that can to those that can is very lopsided. Because again, it's the same stuff as a lot of. Struggling mean, kids love structure, same as adults. Adults love structure too.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But you know the you know the action of getting up, getting dressed, going to a building to go to school or going to a building to go to work. These are you know these are kind of routines and structure that are very beneficial and you know the structure of roll out of bed um, you know run your hand through your uh, tousled hair and put on zoom really is not a structure that has been trained into many people to be able to learn from
0: are they fascinated so, by few also and kind of the distillery do they spend any time in it or kind of like do any odd <laughs> jobs here and there like what's it like being a parent and kind of Running an alcohol business with children and like ha- handling that education <laughs> process with them.
1: Yeah, I think it's delicate. They really, for the most part, don't have a lot of interest in the product because it's like, well, if dad does it, therefore it's embarrassing. <laughs> um, but it has been funny, like watching them, you know, as they've gotten older, it's like, you know, when they were little and in, you know, kindergarten, first, second grade kind of thing, they were just really freaked out because. I mean, you know, they knew about it, they knew it smelled bad, they knew it was really loud in here. They knew it tasted bad because, you know, they'd put a finger in and taste it and go, <laughs> um, But yet, all their teachers and all their friends' parents thought I was the coolest thing ever. Oh, yeah. And they, they just couldn't figure it out. Like, you know, daddy's not cool, daddy's just daddy. <laughs> and that stuff is gross, like, why do people like it? I don't understand. And so they, they were just super confused. And now as I've gotten older, they're kind of like, oh, gets you fucked up, but people like getting fucked up. So that's why it's cool. But now it's still really embarrassing because all our friends are like, uh, can I work for your dad? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> no, that's embarrassing. I love that. Um, but so it's, uh, it's kind of funny. I saw a meme a few days ago with uh, the guitar player from Slayer pictured with his kid. And, you know, he's there with his long hair and he's uh-huh. got the heavy metal guitar and he's throwing the horn with his tongue out and his teenage daughter is just sitting next to him rolling her eyes at him. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the caption was, you could be the guitarist in Slayer and you're still going to embarrass your teenage daughter.
0: I love that. <laughs> I absolutely love it. What is the, uh, what is the future for few kind of look like to you right now? Any new spirits on the horizon or any t- new types of spirits? Or is it just kind of business as usual and, and trying to survive all this?
1: No, I mean, we're, growing, we're continuing to grow and you know, we're doing great. Uh, we're launching a brand new spirit in about, uh, I don't know what today is, but in about three weeks uh, we're launching what we call the Few Immortal Rye. And it's our Few Spirits Rye Whiskey uh, brought down to bottling strength with Eight Immortals tea, Mm -hmm. And so you get this really strong tea note. And the tea itself is a super fruity, tropical fruit, uh, dragon fruit, mango, guava, paya flavors. These really nice, bright, fruity notes that really match well with the spice and fruits of the Few Spirits Rye Whiskey. And so we're super excited about that. Uh, should be hitting the market in about two weeks uh, or three weeks. I get, I forget. Um, you know, September 1st, whatever okay. that is from today. Got it. Um, and so we're re- real excited about that, but on top of that, we're just going to keep on growing. Good. Um, you know, we're out there every day, making, you know, we're out here every day, making whiskey, uh, bottling whiskey. And our team is out there every day, uh, representing it out in the world. And, you know, we're in retail and we're, Doing all we can to continue to bring our message to people, but people are people are looking for our stuff now. People know who we are, and you know we're doing you know, you know considering I think we're doing pretty solid.
0: Good, that makes me happy to hear, I, and not just because I I adore the product and I'm a massive massive fan of drinking it myself. So I'm just glad to hear that everybody's doing good or as good as they can. Obviously, everything considered. Uh, there's one sure. more question as we start to kind of wind down that I can't not ask, and I think I know the answer to this based on where the distillery is, but is, I, there's no way I can't ask it. Uh, socks or Cubs?
1: Oh, Cubs. Oh, okay, uh, fair enough. No hatred, no hatred for my socks, uh, Chicago, Chicago. I am a I'm a Sox fan, but uh, I put the fan in close. Uh, I want them to do well. I don't hate on anybody, but uh, I you know li- wearing a Cubby hat right now. I've uh, been a season ticket holder for 20 years. Well, one of my first memories is going to Wrigley with my dad and my grandpa. Um, I'm a hardcore Cubby fan.
0: That's great. Well, I hope that Wrigleyville can kind of come back from all this pretty well, and obviously Chicago as a whole. So. Yeah. I, we'll get I, there. I adore the town. Uh, Paul, as we start to kind of wind down, you mentioned it a little bit earlier when we were recording, but if people want to find you on social media, if they want to find few, where can they do all that?
1: Absolutely. So Few Spirits is just at Few Spirits on all their social media channels. Uh, I am Paul M. As in Michael Holetko, H uh, L E T K O, at Paul M. Holetko, uh, on the Instagram. You can find Paul Holetko on the Facebooks as well.
0: And if they want to find the spirits, most major retailers?
1: Most major retailers were available in 50 states, 36 countries across five continents, uh, ranging from Binny's to Whole Foods. To, you know, out there in uh, Orange County, we're at High Times, we're at, uh, um, uh, you know, Bethmo, we're at Total, uh, we're at the Mixing Glass over there in Costa Mesa. Um, We are, you know, we're in fine retailers all over the country.
0: And not that this has any personal bias, but if you're listening and you are in Orange County, the Mixing Glass would be the first one to hit up, because I I just personally adore that place, so...
1: Mixing Glass is awesome, and if you don't know Gabby, go in there, say hi, hi to Gabby,
0: and give her a hug for me, because she's awesome. Yeah, she's one of my favorite human beings around here and, and probably ever. I adore her. Uh, well, Paul, thank you so, so much for the time. There's so many other times. To- I could keep going on and on all day. Um, I don't want to keep you. Obviously, you have a lot to do and really, really good things to create, um, but I absolutely would love to sit down and continue to pick your brain. And, and again, I've got a whole whole row of questions that I could keep going all day with, but I yeah. don't want to take any Have more of your time. Your time. Uh, thank you so, so much for sitting down and taking the time today. I really, really appreciate yeah, it.
1: thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely. Great it's
1: to be pleasure. here. Thanks, Crawford. All
0: right, Paul, I will talk to you at some point soon. All right, see All right, take care. Bye. Thank you so much to Paul for taking the time to sit down on this pokey little podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you will go out and get some of uh, Fuse products soon. Again, if you're listening to this on the road, pull over, look up where they're at, go get your hands on some of them. You will not regret it. I promise you that. Um, I absolutely adore them. I'm so, so happy to have them back on my bar at home now. I cannot wait to dig into them. Okay. Spoiler alert. I've already dug into them quite a bit, Uh, but this was a really fun one. Uh, I really, really, I, I, I just don't have any more words. I love the guy. I love his whiskeys. I love his gin. Um, I love that Midwest mentality of just, we're just going to get shit done and it's going to be really delicious. And his stuff is. So I hope you learned a lot. If you're kind of like me, a little self-taught in the distilling process, it can be a little intimidating. All good. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to follow Paul on social media and definitely check out his bedtime stories things. It's really, really awesome, especially in times where we could all use a little bit of a smile. Um, and, you know, whiskey helps. You can put the kids to sleep and then help put yourself to sleep. So everybody needs a good night's sleep. Paul, thank you so much for the time. Thank you again to Joe Cook for helping set this interview up. It means the world to me. You can follow me on Instagram if you want. I'm not as interesting as Paul at The Best Seats. Go out and check the website, Patreon, whole nine yards. You know what to do. Enough of that, though. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you to Paul again. I'll see you next time. The Best Seats Podcast is an original production of The Best Seats. It is written, edited, produced, and owned by myself, Rafa McCarthy, founder and owner of The Best Seats. It is recorded in Aliso Viejo, California. It is subsidized through generous donations through patreon.com slash thebestseats. The following are names that have subscribed at the highest tier, a.k.a. norm status, and thus allow me to produce the show each and every episode. Thank you. From the bottom of my heart, here are the supporters. Alexander Cook, Katie Cas. Eric Watson is Rita Marino. Down the Sanders, Cheryl McCarthy.